0: Morning, everybody. If you got your Bibles, uh, turn with me to the last chapter of Job. uh, Job 42. We're gonna gonna finish up Job. Well, we're gonna finish up the book of Job today. We won't finish up our study of Job today. Uh, The title is is a two-part title. The first is Restoration, and the second is sovereignty. Restoration and sovereignty. Sovereignty, Job 42, 7 through 17. Uh, A last verse, excuse me, that we studied last week was uh, Job 42, 6, where Job said, Therefore I despise myself and I repent in dust and ashes. Now, at at this point, Job has repented uh, of the things that he said that are not correct. So it would seem that the purposes of God are now fully accomplished and that it would be time to restore Job, restore his health, restore his wealth and all of that. But it's not quite. God still has a couple of things that he wants to do. He's actually got two more purposes or two more things. The first one is the humbling of Job's friends. Now, He's going to humble them in two ways. The first thing he's going to do is he's going to tell them, just point blank, that their theology is wrong. The second thing they're going to do, or he's going to do, is he's going to make them seek forgiveness through Job. He's going to make them go and seek his forgiveness through the very man that they had uh, condemned. Look at verse 7. It says, "'After the Lord had spoken these words to Job, "'the Lord said to Eliphaz the Temanite, "'My anger burns against you and your two friends, "'for you have not spoken of me what is right "'as my servant Job has.'" Now listen, God is not saying, obviously, that everything Job said was right because we heard Job admit, "'I said things I shouldn't have said. "'I said things that I didn't know about. "'I was ignorant, right?' So we know not everything he said was right." But when it comes to the basic dispute between Job and his friends, Job was right and they were wrong. For example, they said over and over Job was suffering because he had committed some great hidden sins that that nobody knew about. Job said that's not the case and Job was was right and they were wrong. They said the wicked always uh, always suffer and the righteous always Prosper. Job said, no, that's not the case. Look around you. Sometimes the exact opposite is true. Job was right, and they were, were wrong. They saw all God's justice working itself out on this earth. Job said, no, it's, it doesn't work that way. Sometimes the finality of God's justice, we won't see that until the life to come. Job was right. They were They were wrong. So, so God humbles these three men by basically saying, you know that guy you've been talking about? That guy that you said was a great sinner and had all this wickedness? Uh, he's a better theologian than you are. He spoke about me what was right much more than, than you did. But that's, So that's the first thing that he says to them. But their humbling is not yet complete. They, they are not going to be allowed to simply go to their closet, get on their knees ask forgiveness of God, and all is all is said and done. They're not going to be allowed to do that. Look at verse 8. God has something else. He says, Now therefore take seven bulls and seven rams, and go to my servant Job, and, seven, uh, and and offer up a burnt offering for yourselves, and my servant Job shall pray for you, for I will accept his prayer not to deal with you according to your foolishness or your folly. For you have not spoken of me what is right as my servant Job has now you got to think about this from their point of view this has to be humiliating you've been sitting there for for literally for days or weeks and and you've been telling this guy you're a sinner you're a sinner you're a sinner and God says oh by the way go to him and let him pray for you and I'll accept his prayer not your prayer I'll accept his prayer so the very one they've condemned now has to be their mediator has to be their 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 quote-unquote priest uh, to go talk to God for them. So this had to be, again, God's humbling them. Now, to their credit, they do exactly what God says. Verse 9, So Eliphaz the Temanite and Bildad the Shueyed and Zophar the Namathite went and did what the Lord had told them. So what God is doing is He's setting it up that the only way they can experience or uh, they can reconcile with God... Is they have to first reconcile with Job. They've got to humble themselves before Job, before men, not just before God. They can't just humble themselves in a closet and say it's all done. They got to go before Job and basically humble themselves. Now, by the way, this should sound familiar to us from the New, because this is all over the New Testament. Jesus said in, in Matthew five twenty-three to twenty-four, "If you are offering your gift at the altar." and you remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there and go. First, be reconciled to your brother, then come back and offer your gift to God. It's always been that way. I mean, remember, Job's the oldest book in the Bible. It was the first book ever written. And already there, you see the same principles that we see in the New Testament. Now, that's the first thing. I said God had two purposes that He wanted to accomplish before He... Uh, He restores Job. The first one was to humble Job's friends. The second one, he's got one more test for Job. One more little test for Job. And Job is going to be asked to prove that he's really repentant. Now, how is he asked to prove that? He's going to be asked to love his enemies and pray for those who abused him. Once again, that should sound very familiar to us here in 2019. Matthew 5:44 to 45 once again the words of Jesus but I say to you love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father in heaven or how about Matthew 6:14 through 15 excuse me if you forgive others their trespasses your heavenly father will also forgive you but if you do not forgive others their trespasses neither will your father forgive yours If you're walking around today with unforgiveness in your heart toward a person and you say, I'm forgiven by God, you are living under delusion. That's a delusion. The Bible says that cannot be. You cannot walk around forgiven by God, and yet you will not give forgiveness to somebody else. You're deceiving yourself. That's a delusion. You are still in your sins. Jesus said you have to forgive others. And that's what exactly what Job is being asked to do. You see, Job has repented. He said that, I think, in verse 6. I, I repented. I, I despise myself. But the genuineness of his repentance will prove itself in whether he's willing to forgive his friends. That's what he's going to be asked to do. This is Job's very last test. Will he extend the same forgiveness he's gotten from God? Will he extend that to his friends? And of course the answer is yes. Verse 9. And it says, so Eliphaz and Bildad and Zophar, they went and did, they went to Job, they asked him to pray, and the Lord accepted Job's prayer, which tells us that not only did Job pray for him, but it was a sincere prayer. God accepted that prayer from Job. So here we are at the end of the book. All of the, Through the suffering of Job, Job God has uh, accomplished several things. Number one, the honor of his name was vindicated. If you remember several weeks ago in the very... First chapter, him and Satan, uh, God and Satan. And Satan says, man, if, if you do these things, he'll curse you to your face. And God said, okay, let's see what will happen. We'll see the value of God, the honor of God, the glory of God was vindicated. Job didn't do any of those things. The removal of pride from Job's life, which is one of the things that uh, Elihu said that was, was going on in Job's life. He, 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 he made too much of his own righteousness at the expense of God's uh, justice. And so there was pride in his life. That was taken care of. The friends were humbled. Their theology was corrected. The brotherhood of Job and his friends was restored and put back together. And finally, the church of God, you and I, are greatly enriched. How is it that we're sitting here 3,000, 4,000 years later, and when men and women suffer, we go and pick up that Bible and we turn to the book of Job? I mean, even today, we're still being blessed. We're still being encouraged. We're still being edified by what happened literally millennia ago. So these are all the purposes of God. Now, with all those purposes accomplished, there's no reason for his suffering to continue. Verses 10 and 11. And the Lord restored the fortunes of Job when he had prayed for his friends. Did you notice? He didn't do it until he forgave. He didn't do anything until he had prayed for his friends. And the Lord gave Job twice as much as he had before. Then came to him all his brothers and sisters... By the way, did you even know he had brothers and sisters? I didn't. And because why? Because when he started suffering, they they just didn't show up. The Lord Then came to him all his brothers and sisters and all who had known him before. And they ate bread with him in his house. And they showed him sympathy and comforted him for all the evil the Lord had brought upon him... And each of them gave him a piece of money and a ring of gold. Back, back in Job 19, Job had said this, He has put my brothers far from me. Those who knew me are wholly estranged from me. My relatives have failed me. My close friends have forgotten me. So they, all these people just left. They were nowhere around. They didn't want anything to do with Job. Of course, now that he's restored, they all, they all come, come back. Verse 12, And the Lord blessed the latter days of Job more than his beginning... He had 14,000 sheep, 6,000 camels, 1,000 yoke of oxen, and 1,000 female donkeys. If you go back to chapter 1, that's exactly twice. Before he started suffering, he had 7,000 sheep. He had 3,000 camels. He had 500 yoke of oxen. And he had 500 female donkeys. So, the, so God exactly doubles everything he has. Now, here's something interesting. And he also had seven sons and three daughters. Okay. How many sons? How many children did he have before he, before he suffered? Ten. Now he gets ten. Now, you would expect it to double, right? He doubles everything else. Why didn't he double the children? He did. He did double the children because, see, even your children that are gone are still yours. They're still his children, even though they're in heaven. So he has 20 children now. Everybody see that? He doesn't see animals the same as he sees children. They're they're still his children, even though they're in heaven. So he's doubled not only all his livestock, he's also doubled his children. Verses fourteen to fifteen. He called the name of the first daughter Jemima, <clears throat> which means turtle dove or daybreak. The name of the second was Keziah, which is cinnamon or cassia. It's a, it's kind of a fragrant spice. And the name of the third was Karen Hapuch, which means. Jar of eye paint or horn of beauty. The idea with her, if she was so beautiful, she needed zero makeup. That's the idea behind that name. She, has, she don't need any makeup. She's that beautiful. In all the land, there were no women so beautiful as Job's daughters, and their father gave them an inheritance among their brothers. Which, by the way, just was not done in that day. The, the, the boys, the, the male inherited, the, the, the females didn't. But God, something's changed in Job. You can just see, now he says, okay, even even my daughters, I'm going to give them an inheritance. And after this, Job lived 140 years, and he saw his sons and his sons' sons to four generations. And Job died an old man and full of days. I was telling somebody this week that that idea of being full of days is like being full after a meal. When you've sat down to a meal and you've just eaten, you're full, and you just can't, you're just completely satisfied. That's how Job felt about his life. Full of days. There was nothing else to do. There was nothing else to accomplish. I just love that, don't you? I mean, that would be great that, that, that you put that on your tombstone full of days. Nothing else to accomplish. Nothing else to do. Nothing else to see. He was completely satisfied with his life. Now, we get to the end of the book, and there's just one little, little lingering issue that bothers me. And what bothers me is that God never did tell Job the reason for his suffering. God never did say, Job, now that this is all over, let me just kind of fill you in on what was going on up in heaven. Never did. Never did tell him. Now, this is odd because it seems to be a major theme of the book. I mean, go back and read the book from chapters 4 to chapters 37, which is probably 85, 90% of the book, They're arguing, Job and his friends, about why. Why did you suffer? What's going on? What's the reason behind this? God shows up and never says a single thing about the reason. Now, the question is, well, did God somehow miss the point? Well, of course not. God doesn't make mistakes. So the reason behind Job's suffering was never the real issue of the book. They thought that was the issue. They argued and argued and argued, but that was never the real issue. You see, when, when God, whatever God addresses, that's the real issue. Right? Whatever God comes up and says and shows, that's always been the real issue. They just didn't see it. And what God shows up and addresses teaches Job a much bigger lesson. And by the way, teaches us a much bigger lesson. And that's the lesson that he really needed to learn. You see, if think about it this way. If God had showed up and said, "Joe, let me tell you, man, there was this Satan came up into heaven and he and and uh, he talked he was kind of bragging about how he'd been going around the earth and and I said, "Look at my servant, Job. If if God would have told if that would have been the the end all, that wouldn't have helped us at all. Would it? Would that have helped you with your suffering? I mean, maybe there's a way. I mean, that would have helped Job, but it wouldn't have helped us. What God did is he showed up and not only did he help Job, he helped every single Christian that would ever suffer suffer." After Job. And this is the lesson. He shows up and he says, I'm in charge. I'm in control, just trust me. That was the lesson for Job, and that's been the lesson for every Christian, every single believer who's ever come after Job and wondered why. You see, guys, listen, you and I, if you'll admit it, you're not wise enough to even run your own life. be quite honest, I'm not. I'm not smart enough to even run my on life, much less an entire universe in the lives of seven or eight billion other people. But God is. And that's the lesson that He shows up. You see, like Job, when we suffer, most of the time, the vast majority of the time, you're never going to know why. You're never going to have any idea what's going on. What what's God's trying to accomplish. What are His plans? So Job, God shows up to Job, and He says to Job, and He says to you and I, just trust me. I know what I'm doing. I'm in control of the, of the situation. You see, when we suffer, we don't need to spend countless, endless hours wondering why. We shouldn't know need to know all the details. We just need to put our trust in a sovereign God. Trust Him to take care of us. Trust Him that He'll always do what's right, even when it makes no sense. Even when what's going on around us or in us or in our lives makes no sense, trust Him. That's the real lesson of the book of Job. I'll end Job's study here, or the book of Job, with a quote by Charles Spurgeon. He says this, We are not all like Job, but we all have Job's God. I like that. We're not all going to be Job's, but we all have Job's God. Though we've never risen to Job's wealth, nor will probably ever sink to Job's poverty... Yet there is the same God above us if we be high, and the same God with His everlasting arms beneath us if we be brought low. And what the Lord did for Job, He will do for us, not precisely in the same form, but in the same spirit and with like design. See, this is what God wants us to see. He wants you and I to be able to go to that book and learn the same lesson that He taught to Job. I am in control. You see, it should be enough for us to know that. That's the lesson of the book of Job. By the way, it's a lesson that we'll spend our whole lives learning. We'll spend our entire lives learning. Now, God is in control. That's the lesson of the book of Job. The question for you and I as we come to the end of this book is do you really believe that? Do you really believe that? Not in your head. I'm talking down in the deepest recesses of your heart and the deepest recesses of your soul. Do you really believe that God is in control? Ten years ago, 2009, I'm 46 years old. I've been teaching a Bible study here at River of Life since I was 43. I had been teaching it for three years. I had just finished in, in 2009. I was just finishing going through the book of Acts. And as I normally do, I look ahead. I decide what I'm going to do next. And I decided I was going to teach in the book of Ephesians. And so what I normally do is I'm finishing one book. I start reading and studying and kind of meditating on the book that I'm going to. And I'll just read it through several times just to kind of get the gist of it. So as I'm finishing up Acts, I start reading the book of Ephesians. And if you ever open the book of Ephesians, the first three verses are pretty benign. This is what they say. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Well, that's okay. This is going to be pretty good. It's going to be pretty simple. And then I turn to verse 4. Even as He chose us in Him... Before the foundation of the world. That we should be holy and blameless in Him. And then if you read down to verse 11, having been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works, say that with me, all things according to the counsel of His will. And I just stopped. I stopped because I had no idea what that meant. No clue. No clue. You see, the words are right there on the page. They're God's words, right? But see, as we said with Job a couple weeks ago, it's not enough to have God's word. God needs to show up. It's not, a lot of people read His word and they get nothing out of it. You need Him to show up. You see, I wanted to believe that He was in charge of all things, but I just couldn't. See, if you think that somehow you can just make a decision in your head, I'm going to believe something, you're crazy. You can't just decide one day to believe. Not something like that. God's got to show up and do something in your life. And I knew I was in trouble. Because there was no way I could teach something I didn't believe. There's no way I could teach something I couldn't, I didn't understand. I needed to go, so I got on my knees and I started praying, God, I got no clue. What am I going to do? I'm almost panicking as a teacher. I need you to show up. And He did. As I've come to the end of this study, I realize something. It's very simple for me to stand here and say the real lesson of the book of Job is God is in control. But you see, I can't just stop there. I need to give God an opportunity to show up. How many of you were here in that Ephesians class? Just a few. See, a lot of what I'm going to talk about over the next three weeks, most of you have never heard. But I'm going to tell you, how many of you would say that Ephesians class changed your life? I know Ron does. He and I talk about it. It changed my life. So I'm going to give God over the next three weeks, I'm going to give Him an opportunity to show up. I'm going to go back and teach the same lessons that I did ten years ago. You see, if you look at, I don't know if y'all can see that, but I did one lesson in verses one through three and I just stopped. And I spent five weeks on the sovereignty of God. Is He really in control Do you really believe that in the deepest recesses of your heart and soul? I'm gonna, we're gonna talk about that over the next few weeks. So we're gonna kinda, we're still in Job. Are you with me? I'm not doing anything. I mean, the, the, Job ends and says, God says, I'm in control. Trust me. My question is, do you really believe that? So we're gonna kinda go down that road. Now, I'm not big in definitions. I think definition, it's like Trinity, right? Go look in the Bible, There's no, there's no, no, the word Trinity is not there, right? It's a definition. It's something that we use to try to explain what the Bible teaches about the Godhead. So I'm not real big into definitions. I'm much more concerned about the details. What does the Bible say? But I do think it's important because we're going to use this term, sovereignty of God, over and over and over again. What do we mean when we say that? Well, I want to first talk about two terms. Sometimes you'll hear people call it the sovereignty of God, and then you'll hear sometimes called the providence of God. Are they the same? Are they different? Well, you'll see different things. For example, some see them as different things. John Piper, for an example, sees these as different things. He says the sovereignty of God is God's right and ability to do whatever He wants. We see this in Scripture, Psalms 115.3. Our God is in the heaven, He does whatever He wants to That's what it means to be sovereign. 1 Timothy 6.15 says, He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords. God is sovereign. He has the power and the might and authority to do anything that He wants to do. But does He do it? See, John Piper says the providence of God is how He uses His sovereignty to accomplish his purposes. We've got a little idiom in the English language that's kind of funny when you think about it. We'll tell somebody, see to it. Right? Go see to that. What are we saying? Go make sure it's done. Go Do whatever you got to do to accomplish that. See, God's providence is him seeing to it that his purposes are accomplished. So sovereignty, he's king of kings and lord of lords. His providence, Piper says, is him seeing to it Now, other people just see them as the same thing. The sovereignty of God is the biblical teaching. This is according to Wayne Grudem in Systematic Theology. The sovereignty of God is the biblical teaching that all things are under God's rule and control, and nothing happens without His direction or His permission. And he's got a little note, also known as the providence of God. So he sees them just as the same thing. Now... For the purposes of our study over the next two or three weeks, I'm going to use them interchangeably. Like I said, I'm not really concerned about definitions. I'm going to pretty much, for the most part, just call it the sovereignty of, of God. Now, the sovereignty of God is one of our, in Christianity, it's one of our most important doctrines. But it is also one of the most debated. In fact, it's hotly debated. Now, all true Christians would affirm that God is sovereign. We would affirm that God has the power, God has the wisdom, God has the authority to do whatever pleases Him. He can do anything He wants to do. That's not the question. Any true Christian would, 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 would agree to that. He's King of kings. He's Lord of lords. He's, he, he created the, this universe through the power of just speaking a word. Are you kidding me? He can do anything He wants to do. That's not the question. The question is just how much control does He exert? How much does He actually choose to do? To what extent does God see to it that His, accomplishes, uh, that his purposes are accomplished? Now, there are two views on this. I believe one of those. Okay, I'll tell you in a minute which one I believe. Meticulous. Or general. We've got a word here that we use sometimes that somebody micromanages or they macromanage. Does God micromanage the universe? Is he in charge of every little detail? Or is he more just, has he got kind of a general plan and he's not married to the details? That's the difference between meticulous and general. Another way to look at it is meticulous sovereignty states that God is in control of what? All things. General sovereignty states that he could control all things if he wanted to, but he doesn't really want to. He just chooses to control some things. I've got a picture of a cruise ship. This is an analogy that I heard years ago. General sovereignty, it's like being on a cruise ship. You get on at at, at point A, and you want to get to point B. God is concerned with you getting from A to B. What happens on the cruise ship, what time you get up, what you eat for dinner, what movies you watch, what time you go to bed. God doesn't really care. Everybody with me? That would be general sovereignty. He just wants to make sure you get from point A to point B. What happens on the ship, he's not really concerned with. Meticulous sovereignty says, oh, no, no. Not only is God going to make sure you get from point A to point B, but he's in control of everything you do on that ship. That's meticulous sovereignty. So which is it? Is God, in? is He general? Is He meticulous? If we're going to find out, if we're going to answer that question, there's only one place that we can do that. That's the Word of God. Because you see, anything else would be speculation. Right? If God wants us to know the answer, He has to give us the answer. He has to reveal the answer in His uh, Word. And by the way, He has done that. In fact, if I stood here right now, and I just it would take me three hours just to go through the Scriptures. A good three hours just to go through the Scriptures where God has revealed to us His control. I mean, there, there, there's thousands of them. They're all over the Bible. So what we're going to do for the rest of the today and into the next two, three, four weeks is we're going to look at what God has revealed to us in His Word um, about His sovereignty. Now... We've already looked at one scripture. This is a scripture that ten years ago I opened up and stopped and said, I don't believe that. In him we have obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works, what, say it with me, all things. Well, he's done told me, clear as a bell, it's all things. But I'm not, I'm not real big on taking one scripture and building a doctrine. You can't do that. You let the Bible interpret the Bible. What does God mean by all things? Do you really mean all things? Do you mean the weather? Do you mean the animals? Do you mean my heart? What do you mean, God? I need to know that. And so I went on a journey to discover what He meant by all things. And I'm going to tell you right now, He means all things. He means all things. Now, we are going to wade out into this slowly. Today we're just going to get about ankle deep. Next week, we'll get up to our waist. The week after that, we'll get up to our chin. The week after that, we'll just you won't even be able to see us. We'll be so deep into the water by that time. So we're going to take this very slowly. Let's start. We've got about 15 minutes. I want to start with a few things today. I want to start with something that I call preservation. I want to read a scripture. This is from Job. We just came out of Job. Job said this in chapter 34. If he should set his heart on it. If he should gather to himself his spirit and his breath, all flesh would perish together and man would return to dust. Job says if God decides to pull back, every, every single one of us would just collapse and go back to dust. In other words, he is preserving the world. He is preserving the universe according to Job. Now, we've got to keep in mind, you remember Job is poetry. Remember we talked about that early on. So anytime you read poetry, sometimes there's wordplay. sometimes there's maybe a little bit of exaggeration to get the point across. So is Job exaggerating? Are there other scriptures that say the same thing? Well, of course there are. Nehemiah 9.6 says this, You alone are the Lord. You have made heaven, the heaven of heavens, with all their hosts, the earth and everything on it, the seas and all that is in them, and you preserve them all. Hebrews 1.3, talking about Jesus, said this, "...He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature, and He upholds the universe by the word of His power." That upholds is the Greek word pharaoh P-H-E-R-O. It means to carry or bear. You've seen the, the old Greek picture of Atlas, where He's holding the earth on His shoulder? That's the idea. He's bearing the earth. He's carrying it. He's upholding it and in greek it's a, it's what's called a present participle which means it's continuing doesn't mean he did it in the past means he does it every day colossians 1:16 through 17 again talking about jesus for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth visible and invisible whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities all things were created through him and for him and he is before all things and in him all things hold together you see, if he pulls back, if he was to extract himself from this universe, the whole thing would just immediately collapse. Acts 17, 24 to 28. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us, for in him we live and we move and we have our being. See, it's not just the universe, it's us. It's us it's through Him that we can even, like Job said, if He pulls back, you'd immediately just collapse. Second Peter 3, 5-7, through 7, this is talking about people who scoff about Jesus returning. Where's, where's the promise of His returning? Peter says this, For they willfully, willfully forget that by the, by the Word of God, the world that then existed, talking about in the days of Noah, was flooded with water. But the heavens and earth which are now preserved by the same word are reserved for fire until the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. So does the Bible teach us that God is continually involved with all created things so that he keeps them existing? Yes. We've got Old Testament scriptures. We've got New Testament scriptures. We've got multiple scriptures that tells us if he was to stop or remove himself, the entire universe would just come to a grinding halt. So God is involved, actively involved, in preserving everything we see around us. Now, let's turn to what I call inanimate creation. By inanimate, I mean snow, wind, hail, fire, uh, weather, things like that. Let's see what Job says about him. Job 37, 6-13, For he, talking about God, says to the snow, fall on the earth, Likewise to the gentle rain and the heavy rain of His strength. From the chamber of the south comes the whirlwind and cold from the scattering winds of the north. Also with moisture He saturates the thick clouds. He scatters His bright clouds. They swirl about, being turned by His guidance, that they may do whatever He commands them on the whole face of the earth. He causes it to come. See, God always has purpose in what He does. Always. Always. He causes it to come whether for correction, or for His land, or for mercy. Some some days God uses the weather and it's for correction, He says. Sometimes it's just for the land, because the land needs it. Sometimes it's for mercy. The other day I went on my back porch and I videoed the rain. I hadn't seen it in so long, I just wanted to remember it. Are you with me? And I just remember looking at the rain and saying, Thank you, God, finally. I mean, I hadn't seen it in like eight weeks, man. I thought, I, I thought somebody in the north part of the county was cursed. That's all I knew. But it rained. You know, it's mercy. It's for the land. Job said, God does that. Job thirty-eight thirty-two. Can you bring forth the constellations in their seasons, or lead out the bear, which is talking about the Big Dipper with its cubs? Job thirty-eight twelve. Have you ever given orders to the morning, or shown the dawn its place? Again, is this just poetry? Are we finding the same things in other places in the Bible? Psalms 148.8, fire and hail, snow and clouds, stormy wind, fulfilling His Word. Psalms 104.14, He causes the grass to grow for the cattle and vegetation for the service of man, that He may bring forth food from the earth. Listen, He causes the grass to grow. He does that. Psalm 135, 6 through 7. Whatever the Lord pleases, He does in heaven and earth, in the seas, and in all the deep places. He causes the vapors to ascend from the ends of the earth. He makes lightning for the rain. He brings the wind out of His treasuries. Amos 4 7. Now, listen, I'm going to come back in a minute because I already know what some of you are thinking. Now, wait a minute, Derek. God created all this, and it just works. He doesn't have to do anything. That's not what the Bible says. That's not what the Bible says. And I'm going I'm to address that because you're already thinking some of those things. I'm going to get that at the, at the end here. Okay. Now, so far, we ain't gotten very specific. How about Amos four seven? I also withheld rain from you when the harvest was still three months away. I sent rain on one town, but I withheld it from another. One field had rain, Another had none and dried up. God said, I did that. I did that. I made that choice. Matthew 5.45, He causes the sun. He causes. He is the primary cause. He causes His Son to rise on the evil and the good. And He sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. See, we think it just happens. God created the earth. and he, he, there's, a, there's an analogy out there called the, called the uh The watchmaker. And this idea, uh, Deists used to believe this, men like Thomas Jefferson, uh, Benjamin Franklin, that God somehow created the heaven and the earth and he wound it up like a watch and he just sits, sits back and he just watches. See, that's not what the Bible says at all. He sins, he causes, he makes over and over and over and over again. See, whether it's all these inanimate things, snow, hail, wind, lightning, rain, the Bible says He causes it to come, sometimes for correction, sometimes just for the land, sometimes He's doing it for mercy. The final thing we'll look at this morning is animals. The Bible says a lot about this. Job 38, 39-41. Do you hunt the prey for the lioness and satisfy the hunger of the lions when they crouch in their dens or lie in wait in a thicket? Who provides food for the raven when its young cry out to God and they wander about for lack of food? Psalms 104, 25 to 28, This great and wide sea, in which are innumerable teeming things, living things, both small and great, these all look to you to give them their food at the proper time. And when you give it to them, they gather it up. When you open your hand, they are satisfied with good things. Matthew six twenty six. Listen, these are the words of Jesus. Would Jesus lie? There's no sin in him. This is his words. Look at the birds of the air. They don't sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. These are the words of Jesus. He's saying, you may not understand this, but God feeds those birds. That's, that's what he's saying. Matthew ten twenty nine: Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? Yet not one of them will fall to the ground apart from the will of your Father. You think God's just sitting back with a general plan? Jesus said, no, if two birds don't fall off the, the, the branch to the ground without the, apart from the will of your Heavenly Father. He's in control of all things. Now, I need to cover one thing before I quit here today. When I covered this ten years ago, and, I, and by the way, I know all these questions because I ask them myself. I'm reading this and I'm thinking, now wait a minute. <laughs> Come on. God created the hydrologic cycle. God created all this stuff and it just works. Whether, whether you know, there's a there's a, a little front builds in Africa and it comes and it gets over warm water and there's a there's a cold front up here and there's a pressure system down there and, and so it hits North Carolina instead of Florida. It's just it's just because of the weather. It's not because God is in control of anything. You see, everything we just talked about from the universe to the inanimate creation to all the animals being fed, all of those have a perfectly natural explanation, right? Perfectly natural. The bird gets up in the morning, he goes out, he sees a grasshopper, and he eats the grasshopper. It, did God put that grasshopper there? See, the Bible says he did. But we think, come on, that's, that's too much. See, God, it tells us over and over, God does that, God does that, God does that. Now here's the thing, you can't have your cake and eat it too. You see, the fact is, we should all be familiar with this. I get a raise. There's a perfectly natural explanation for that. My boss is a good guy, I'm a hard worker, I've taken on additional responsibilities. But who do I thank for that raise? God. There's a pile-up on the interstate that I get to, and I've been delayed about 30 minutes by a flat tire down the road. And I come to that pile-up, and there's just cars and death everywhere. There's a perfectly natural, rational explanation for why I was not in that pile-up, because I had a flat tire. But who do I thank for that? God. You see, all of these things, God is the primary cause. Nature or creation or a good boss or a flat tire, they're the secondary cause. You can take God out of the picture and you can move him to the side and you can always just say, well, this happened or that happened or this happened or that happened. But you open the Bible and it always says, God did that, God sent that, God made that, God caused that. So just because there's a natural explanation for something doesn't make it right to leave God out of it, and I think that's crucial for us to uh, understand. All right, we just waded in a little bit this morning. Next week we're going to go a lot deeper, get up to about our waist, and by the time we're at the end of next week's lesson, we'll be uh, we'll be up to our chin. So next week we'll talk about uh, we'll continue in this this talk. I would strongly strongly encourage you. If you can be here over the next two weeks, please come. You don't want to miss. I will show you things, I promise you. I will show you things in the Bible you've never seen before. I will show you there are just, it's everywhere. Because God wants us to know. Probably as much as anything else we know, He wants us to know, I'm in control, just trust me. Let's pray. Father.